Esther 4, 13b through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word in our lives, asking that your spirit would open our eyes to see and our hearts to hear. Show us Jesus. Teach us the gospel. Make us your people. For the sake of communicating the goodness and glory of your holy name, we pray. So have you ever been to one of those really super fancy $1,000 a plate dinner parties where rich people pretend to laugh at each other's jokes and hobnob with other rich people all in order to make sure that they all stay rich? Yeah, me, me neither. Craziest thing, rich and fancy people don't invite preachers to their hoity-toity, scratch-each-other's-backs parties because, well, who wants what I bring to parties? <laughs> Anybody interested in talking about the theological particularities of Pado-Baptist and Credo-Baptist covenant theology? Didn't think so. Come to think of it, I almost never get invited to parties. Hmm. Well, anyway, we begin the book of Esther with a king who was throwing one of those kinds of parties. This party was like every middle school dance, high school prom, college frat party, and, and Washington Beltway political elite party rolled up into one big, crazy, long, decadent party that the rich and powerful people from half the world attended and that lasted over six months and that was thrown, get this, <laughs> by and for the same one dude, Ahasuerus, king of Persia. Jump in with me to look at Esther chapter 1, which recounts the basics of this party. But what we'll see together today is that the book of Esther, which doesn't even include God's name one time, is written to satirically uncover the silliness of this world's kings and kingdoms in order to reveal the hidden king who was working behind the scenes to deliver his people. Check this out. Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. It starts like this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, some Bible versions say Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S, which is just the Greek version of the same king, which, if you're listening, sounds already like a fairy tale, doesn't it? It starts out like this. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, like from the get-go, the book of Esther is setting him up as kind of a big deal. This wasn't just some chump king. This dude was, verse 1, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Ahasuerus is one of those types who is so rich and powerful that to sort of lean down to pick up a bajillion dollar bill isn't really worth his time because it isn't actually worth his time. Uh, so King Ahasuerus, King A, we'll call him. King A was basically in charge of the entire world. 
he wanted to make sure that everyone knew how awesome he really was, so he threw one of these fancy sort of Washington Beltway parties to keep his, his power and his status intact. So verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, which was a vacation home slash military fortress, in those days, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Now, I know we've sort of kidded about this a little bit. And we've thrown the uber rich under the bus of sorts. But this, this kind of throw a party thing was really an important part of maintaining one's power and authority. And King A was just doing what all of the cool kings were doing. So keep reading. He brought in all the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces. They were all before him. You see, the Persians had just captured the Median Empire because, well, the Medians were just average. The Medians were just average. Anyway, King Ahasuerus brought in all his military and political officials and servants. All the Medes and the Persians and the nobles and the governors. Verse 4. And he showed the riches of his royal glory and splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. All his military and political officials were there. And he showed all the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. Verse 4. 180 days. I told you it was a long party. And even though, think about this, even though having a six-month-long party sounds impossible, what probably happened is that the nobles and the governors, they came from all over the empire a little bit at a time over the course of those six months. So it was a, a grand soiree, and all the rich and powerful people were there. Now here's where we begin to get a picture of the material excess involved here. And we start to see the size of this king's ego. Look at verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, meaning that even the lowly peasants and boring preachers like you and me got in, the king gave for all the people, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden, of the king's palace. This was the grand finale, and it did not disappoint. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. <laughs> so even the the little people like you and me went home saying things like, I got to sit on a couch of gold and silver. <laughs> Maybe, I, I, I'm guessing. Whatever the case, King Ahasuerus, King A was pulling out all the stops to show his awesomeness and his power so that everyone would know not to mess with him. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels Vessels of different kind, meaning that no two were alike. 
He's so rich he never drinks out of the same vessel twice. How cool is that? This is what the, kind, the, the kinds of things that people were saying. Drinks were served in golden vessels of different kinds. They'd sat on golden couches. They'd drunk from a golden vessel. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking, which usually only happened when the king himself was drinking, was according to this edict. Look at this. This is important in verse 8. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired, to carry out whatever any party goer wanted. This six plus months long party followed by this grand finale had become a free for all celebration of excess and decadence. And here in verse eight, we get a little clue as to the underlying issues with this king. And they aren't just, they aren't just moral degradation and, and decadence. This edict here in verse 8, there is no compulsion. It's the writer of Esther making clear that King Ahasuerus is so, so sort of drunk with power, so to speak, and he's so without a moral center that he's passing an official royal edict that encourages his leaders and encourages the people in that city to do whatever they wanted. This is the opposite of godly rule. Now, with this background of power and excess in mind, things start to get interesting when we meet Queen Vashti. Look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This was common practice for a queen to throw her own party at the same time. But check this out. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, there's that drunk with power thing again, he commanded um, a bunch of crazy names. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. He wanted to parade her in front of everyone, everyone. but look at this, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused. She refused to be made into a trophy wife. She refused to come at the king's demand delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Why? <laughs> because I am King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. I am the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> uh, apparently not. Queen Vashti was like, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> Who's in charge of me now? This was a little preacherly poetic license there with that conversation, but you get the gist. Despite all the military and the political might and all the finery and all the fancy vessels and the gold couches, apparently King Ahasuerus didn't even have control over his own, his own household. Queen Vashti is like, no dice, drunken party boy. So while we don't know why, for some reason she had had enough and she decided to defy the king. The text says 
He commanded, but she refused. Which means, Queen Vashti goes, Queen Vashti goes bye-bye. Look at verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being, again, a bunch of crazy names, the men next to him being the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So these were all of his right-hand men, and he asked them, verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. <laughs> He's like, uh, what do I do when someone doesn't listen to me? King A wasn't exactly a wise and seasoned leader. Verse 16. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to him, to be brought before him, and she did not come. In other words, listen, king, everyone will know you're actually a big buffoon and that your power isn't really all that powerful. Verse 18. This very day, Mamukin, the right-hand man for the king, kept, kept talking. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials. So he's worried about it for himself too. And there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In other words... They're all worried because they are being shown for who they really are. Their power is being shown for what it really is. As Queen Vashti had just proven, nobody had to actually listen to their commands if they didn't want to. You see, obedience is earned through wise and faithful leadership that is rooted in the wisdom of God to produce a place where people become who he created them to be. And when you manipulate and you control them with, with worldly means, they see right through it and you lose your power. The book of Esther is setting us up to see that the world's kings and kingdoms, if they're not rooted in the wisdom of God, they are, they are empty, they are corrupt, and they're actually laughably devoid of real power to lead people where they really need to go. So the king and his men, they did what you do when you've got no real power with the hearts of the people. They sent out another edict. Verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before a king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, 
that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. King Ahasuerus wanted to make sure that Queen Vashti's defiance became known among the kingdom. But I suspect that he ended up making himself a meme for his corruption of power all along. Now, friends, I think there are a few helpful lessons for us in this opening episode of the book of Esther. And the first is this. It may be a cliche, but it is still true that having all the power, prestige, and resources this world has to offer cannot do what the Spirit of God can. King Ahasuerus had everything you could imagine in worldly terms, but he didn't have the wisdom to lead people well, and he didn't even have the hearts of those closest to him. Having everything on the outside really means nothing if you're not yielded to God in here. If you're obsessed with material stuff of this world and you are given, you are given to impressing people with your power, control, prestige, or external beauty, you're doing the opposite of living from a place of wisdom that understands that God is the creator of this world and is sovereignly taking it somewhere. Don't be deceived into this autonomy, this self-rule, this self-law. Don't be deceived into autonomy like King Ahasuerus, who believed that the material luxury and control that he enjoyed meant that he could control people around him. Having everything is really having nothing if you don't have God's spirit. And then think about Queen Vashti. She's a picture for us of standing up when it's hard, being strong when those around you are weak. All she had to do was agree to being on parade and, and she would have kept all the worldly power and control anyone could ever hope to have. But despite knowing there would be repercussions for standing up she apparently had decided it was worth the risk. In the book of Esther, she is the first to point out that empty-headed, power-hungry people are fools. She recognized that having it all doesn't mean much, and it really can't help a lot when you don't have the integrity to do what is right, especially when it might be unpopular or especially difficult. We'll see a lot of this kind of courage in the, face of danger, uh, in the face of danger in the book of Esther that can be a lesson for us in moments when we know that, that our integrity is on the line. And then finally, when the world feels and maybe actually is out of our control and when it feels like we are just uh, disposable pawns in the political and the worldly power plays of those in authority over us, we can trust that God, the hidden king, is doing something in the world. First Chronicles 29 says that he rules over all and that in his hand are power and might. Revelation 4.11 says that he is Lord and God who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power for he created all things and by his will they exist at all. Exodus 9.16 says that it was for his 
purpose that he created and raised us up, namely for the purpose of showing his power so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God created the world and he is directing it toward his purposes. And we can trust him because he not only outmaneuvers earthly powers, but he is sovereignly in control and able to show it. And he does so in the person of Jesus. Think about God's power. In the person of Jesus, whose perfect life and sacrificial death means that he had power to defeat sin and evil, we see this idea that God alone can render sin and evil helpless and empty to condemn those who know him as king. So friends, when God is your king, you are never powerless. Stop looking at what you don't have. Stop fixating on your lack. Stop going through life as if what you think you don't have according to the world around you is what's most important about you. Start looking at who Jesus is. Start looking at the glory of God. Start seeing his sovereign power in your life and in the world around you. Stop fixating on your lack and start looking at who he is, a king who is capable of bringing deliverance from a place no one was looking and where no one was expecting deliverance. So in that vein, I want us to just take a minute and think about this takeaway question. In what ways have you been fixating on the things of this world to fill up your lack instead of trusting the God who deserves your obedience and delivers salvation? Friends, the world's kings and kingdoms, they do not deserve and they cannot command your obedience. As we studied in our last series, only a God who is infinite, perfect, holy, altogether righteous and good, only a God, only a king like that is worthy of the kind of uh, glory and, and authority that King Ahasuerus here tries to take on for himself and to impose on others. 
Friends, Almighty God alone is worthy of your allegiance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the creator of all that is, that you've made us by your power and for your glory. And so we want to see ourselves rightly, understanding that you are directing the things of this world in our lives in ways that are about declaring your glory, about proclaiming the good news. And so we want to ask you for eyes to see, for hearts that are soft to hear from you, to see the ways you're working in the world. It's tempting, Lord, for us to look at the difficulties and the sufferings of our world and our lives and to give in to the idea that it's, that it's our lack that we should focus on. Father, we ask that in this series, in our time in your word, in the book of Esther, you would continue to turn us into men and women, and marriages and families, indeed a church where, where what we do is we see your work and we proclaim your glory. We give ourselves to this, Lord, because you're worthy of our lives. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.